Well, good morning, everyone. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12 says this. If you are slack in the day of trouble, your strength is in trouble. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the hearts understand? And does not he who guards your soul know? And will not he render to a man according to his work? Last week, we began a discussion on the lies that we don't think we believe about abortion. Lies that we don't think we believe about abortion. And we've been examining this subject from a biblical perspective. We've been discipled by the world on this subject, and we think along the world's terms. And if the Bible didn't have anything to say on the subject, then we, likewise, would have to be quiet. However, the Bible does talk about this subject. It speaks clearly. And what the Bible says is so contrary to what we believe, uh, so contrary to how we respond to this horrible issue that is going on. So, lies that we don't think we believe about abortion. Just in review, lie number one is that what is conceived in the mother's womb is not a baby. Now, we all know that it is a baby. The scriptures are clear. From the point of conception onward, that child is a baby. Uh, A child or a fetus or whatever we want to call it does not become a baby at a certain point in time. Throughout the scripture, we see uh, so-and-so conceived and gave birth to, and the subject is the same. That which is conceived is that which is born. You don't conceive one thing that magically turns into a baby at some point, and then uh, it is now a baby sometime, uh, before, sometime shortly before birth. So that is the, what the biblical uh, truth teaches, and we've believed this lie without even thinking about it. Uh, We've talked about how uh, so many of us can be inconsistent when it comes to how we think of that uh, pre-born child. And uh, we concluded that a person is a person no matter how small they are from that very point of conception. The Bible demonstrates this. Science demonstrates this. It is so absolutely clear from the scriptures. Lie number two that we don't think we believe. The second lie that we don't think we believe is that the rights extended to us do not extend to the unborn. Now, we demonstrated that that is absolutely false. Uh, We saw from Exodus chapter 21, verse 22, how God extends the same protections to the unborn as he does to the born. This is to be expected. This is God's standard of justice because uh, even unborn children are created in the image of God. God has, uh, God sees fit to give them uh, the same protection that we receive. However, we, uh, the laws of this land, and even we as Christians, Uh, believe this lie, and we believe this through various laws that give arbitrary times and stages in life in which the child in the womb must now become protected. There's a point in time where it is legal to kill that child, but oh, once you reach a certain period of time or a certain point of development, then that child receives protection. That is not true, Uh, and we talked about this. And now finally, we're getting on to the third lie, the third lie that we don't think 
we believe about abortion. And this is the lie that has seen abortion continue on in all 50 states for the past 50 years and why abortion is still legal in all 50 states to this day. And this is the lie that we don't think we believe. The lie is this. A mother has the right to murder her child in the womb without consequence. A mother has the right to murder her child in the womb without consequence. That's the lie. So, continuing the pattern that we saw last week, why is this a lie? Well, we know it's a lie. Scriptures plainly teach you shall not murder, right? Uh, you know, if we don't even have to know all the Ten Commandments to know that you shall not murder. It is so plain. It is so clear in all of the scriptures. And that uh, command, you shall not murder, is a universal command. It extends to everyone for the protection of everyone. In fact, God... Uh, 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 one of the very first things that God did after the flood was to prohibit murder. We read this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where God tells Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for, the image of, for in the image of God he made man. One of the very first things after uh, God preserved Noah and his family is to say, you shall not murder, man is created in the image of God, and there are consequences for this act. We see throughout the scriptures how murder, the shedding of innocent blood, pollutes a land. Numbers chapter 35, verses 33 through 34, God says, you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land so that no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel." God says, do not defile the land through the shedding of innocent blood. And he says, this is the very reason that I am expelling the residents out of the land. I am spewing them out. I am spitting it out. And one of the reasons is because of the shedding of innocent blood. The blood of the innocent cries out from the ground as a testimony against them. Therefore, God acts in perfect judgment. So we know you shall not murder. Right? It's, it's obvious. You, you don't even need to have read the Bible to know you shall not murder. And we know that this applies to everyone. It doesn't just apply to you and not me, right? And it doesn't just apply to me and not you. God doesn't make exceptions for this command. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the idea of an exception is the idea of partiality, where you apply the law unequally. If, I were, if God were to say, well, you, Israel, aren't allowed to murder, but the Canaanites, you know, they're, that's part of their culture, it's part of their way, and who am I to say that they can't do those things? No, absolutely not. God is impartial. God hates partiality. He says to Israel, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. You shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. So God hates partiality. And what could be more partial than saying some people should be allowed to kill? Some, some people should be allowed to be killed. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15 says this, 
He who justifies the wicked declares as righteous the wicked. He's talking about in a courtroom case. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination before the Lord. So if a murderer stands before a judge and the judge says, justified, declared as righteous, uh, uh, free of guilt in this case, God says that that is just as much as an abomination as putting an innocent person to death. Similarly, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 24 says, He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, peoples will curse him and nations will be indignant with him. So God's law is clear. In a nutshell, what does it say? No one is allowed to murder anyone. And that's pretty clear, right? I think we all understand that. Uh, So that's what the word of God says. No one should be allowed to murder anyone. But here's how we believe this lie, the lie that a mother has the right to murder her child in the womb without consequence. And let me try to rephrase this lie in a couple different ways, uh, a couple different ways that we hear it and may believe it and try to work through it. Here's one way that the lie is rephrased. And this is something that we'll hear, uh, not just on those arguing for, uh, for aborting unborn children, but those arguing against the abortion of unborn children. They'll say something like this, the mother is just as much a victim as the child that is murdered. That's one way that we hear the lie. Now, don't get me wrong, we can recognize that there are women who have been victimized. We can recognize that there are women who, not by their choice, not by their actions, are forced to kill their unborn children. We're not talking about them, right? Uh, We are not talking about those who are truly victims. Think of those who are slaves in the sex trafficking trade, for instance, who get pregnant and then their pimps threaten to kill them if they do not kill their child and continue their work. These women are indeed victims, right? The guilt of the death of the child lies with the one who forced her hand in the death of that child. It does not lie with her. Similarly, we can grant that there are women who are not complicit in their abortions. Uh, the most... Uh, Uh, the most popular way of carrying out an abortion now is through the abortion pill, through poisoning your child through the taking of a pill. Now, if a husband or a boyfriend deceitfully sneaks these pills into a woman's drink or into her food, thus causing that child to die, of course we recognize that that woman is not guilty, that she indeed is a victim as her child is. We can recognize that there are cases where this is true, where there are women who are victims. However, we also recognize that there are women who, though they may be in difficult circumstances, who do willfully take the life of their own child. And the Bible uh, recognizes that difficult circumstances that aren't life-threatening are no excuse before God. So this idea that a woman is just as much a victim as a child, it's simply not the case. Uh, again, we mentioned those exceptions, now we take those out of the way. Think of, many, think of dif- the difficult circumstances that many who commit crimes find themselves in. If I am up to my eyeballs in debt, if I am unable to pay next month's mortgage, I am in a very difficult circumstance. 
but does that allow me then to go rob my bank in order to pay my mortgage? No, absolutely not. My difficult circumstances do not justify my crime. Think of places like Chicago, where young men grow up without fathers. Young men are introduced to a gang life very early on in their lives. And in order to become full members of the gang, they're told they have to go out and shoot some bystander on the street. Now, we can recognize those are difficult circumstances but it does not take away the guilt of the one who, uh, who commits that murder, does it? And we can see this in the scriptures as well. And I, I thought this was a, 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 a horrific example of where we see this very thing. God does not excuse uh, the breaking of his law. God does not excuse horrific acts due to horrific circumstances. One of the most horrific acts that we can find in the Old Testament is when Samaria is under siege. Uh, This is after the kingdoms have split. Samaria is under siege and the people are starving. And one horrific story involves two women and they come before the king and they say, Oh king, we made a deal that we would eat my child today and then we would eat her child tomorrow. However, she didn't follow through and she hid her child. Now, we can look at that and we can recognize, yeah, horrific circumstances where there is starvation, but that doesn't take away the depravity of the murder of your own child. That is not an excuse before God. God, in fact, hates it when we look around to find some kind of excuse for our sin. They do not fly in God's sight. And that's something that we as sinners love to do. We love to find some other reason for committing our sin. What's the very first thing that Adam did when he was confronted? He said, well, this woman you gave me made me do it, right? God hates this excuse. We read in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, God talking to the people who have been taken away from their land. And uh, Ezekiel says this, The word of Yahweh came to me saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The the fathers ate sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. And here's the picture. The people, as they're taken away from the land, they're saying, This is our father's fault. We're just merely uh, suffering the consequences of what our fathers did, right? Therefore, uh, and, and that was used as an excuse. And this is what God says. As I live, declares Yahweh, you are surely not going to use this proverb anymore. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son. The soul who sins will die. God takes away are excuses. And he does so in the case of the murder of unborn children as well. Something we might hear is that women, after having their child aborted, well, we know they're a victim because they have any number of extreme emotions afterwards. They may feel remorse. Well, yeah, rightly so. Uh, Anyone who is not a completely deranged psychotic killer upon killing an image bearer of God will feel remorse. If you've ever watched police interviews, if you've ever seen people in the courtroom, you will see murderers shedding tears, perhaps even expressing true, genuine remorse for what they have done. However, that does not take away their guilt. That is not an excuse. The judge doesn't look at the tears of the murderer and say, oh, 
well, you must just be a victim. You must not have really meant it, therefore we're going to let you go. That does not work. Severe emotions and mixed feelings after an evil act do not take away the guilt. And we see this even in the case with Judas. Remember what Judas did. He hands over the only innocent man to ever live to the death of a criminal. And Judas knew what he did. Matthew tells us when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he was condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas knew he was guilty, and that did not take away his guilt. And we can't use it as an excuse to allow the continued murder of unborn children. So that's one aspect of the lie that needs to be dismantled. Another aspect of this lie is that uh, when we see uh, bills or laws being proposed that would grant equal protection to unborn children, one of the very first things you'll hear is that, oh, you just want to go after mothers, right? You just want to go after mothers. And that immediately brings about an emotional response, doesn't it? Because I've got a mother. We all have mothers. We all love our mothers. My wife's a mother. There are plenty of mothers in here. Why, why would anyone want to go after mothers? That sounds horrible, doesn't it? Right? It does. Well, and it sounds horrible because it's an emotionally manipulative argument that ultimately mischaracterizes what uh, those who call for biblical justice call for, right? Uh, laws, right, laws against murder do not punish classes of people, right? There's no law that says X class of person is going to receive this punishment. No, laws don't punish classes of people. Laws punish crimes. Laws punish actions. Bills that call for equal justice uh, for the unborn ultimately really make no mention of mothers. Uh, what they merely say is that children in the womb are to be legally protected in the womb against anyone who would seek to kill them, regardless of who they are, with no exceptions. No one is allowed a special exception to murder. And this would include anyone who is complicit in taking the child's life, not just the mother, right? Uh, oftentimes, it is a joint effort, isn't it? Uh, if two people are involved in the murder of killing one, both are charged with the crime. Uh, laws punish people, or laws punish crimes, not classes of people. And those who say, oh, how dare you say we should prosecute mothers? The reality is, in this country, every single day, mothers are punished for crimes that they commit against their children. Some of the most horrific stories we hear on the news are a mother drove off into the desert uh, with her two children and then turned around and shot them. True story. Uh, we hear stories of mothers who drown their children in the bathtub. Horrific stories. And we all recognize this is horrific. And what do we immediately demand in our minds? There must be justice. Why? Because she's a mother and we're se uh, selecting certain people aside and saying, oh, we need to go after mothers. No, we're saying because the crime is so severe, there must be justice. But this is the lie that we will so often hear that we may even believe that, oh, if you're calling for equal justice for the unborn, you just want to see mothers put in jail. 
In fact, that's exactly uh, what we saw just a couple weeks ago when there was this historic bill here in the state of Iowa that would have granted unborn children equal protection of the law. Guess what uh, the man responsible for giving this bill a hearing said? He said that this bill is poorly written legislation intended to be pro-life that allows mothers to be prosecuted and jailed. This concept is opposed by every major pro-life group in America, and I will not advance it. This bill allows mothers to be prosecuted and jailed. But notice he didn't finish the sentence. Prosecuted and jailed for what? For the murder of their unborn children. Guess what? No matter what class you are, if you commit a crime, you'll be prosecuted and jailed. Right? That's just how it goes. Because justice is carried out equally. Justice is to be carried out equally. It's only mothers who murder their children before they're born that are granted a complete and unqualified immunity to carry out this horrific action. And nowhere in the scriptures does God tell us that we are to give legal immunity to any class of person, right? So this is a, that's another aspect of the lie that, well, those mean people who are saying we need to protect children, they just want to go after mothers. No, that's absolutely not the case. We want children to be protected from everyone. And if, God forbid, even their own mother is the one who wants to take that child's life, they must be protected even from them. Now, we continue on. Here's another lie that we so often hear. The lie is this, that it is the abortionist, the one conducting the abortion, not the mother, not the one who takes that child in to be aborted, who is guilty. And we see laws that uh, come up that are uh, shutting down abortion clinics and things like that, and, and that's great, right? But here's the argument. Well, the abortionist is actually the one who took the life of that child. Uh, the mother isn't the one with the instruments. The mother isn't the one going in there and dismembering this unborn child. So she can't be held complicit or accountable. Now, think of it this way. Do abortionists wander the streets prowling around just looking for unborn children to be to kill no in fact unborn children are brought to them are they not right and who is it who brings the unborn children the unborn children well the parents do and just because someone's actual hands aren't at work in the taking of a life it does not take away guilt if i were to hire a hitman to kill i pick on net enough if i were to hire a hitman to kill doug right? And <laughs> I, I pick on Ned enough, like I said. If I were to hire a hitman to kill Doug, and then Doug is killed, but then this hitman is caught, and then his bank records are looked at, and it turns out I'm the one who paid him to do it, would I be able to say in, in my day in court, now hold on a second, I didn't pull a trigger, I didn't even see Doug that day, how can you charge me with the murder of Doug? Everyone recognizes that that is absurd, right? And scripture recognizes this as absurd too. We have a, a biblical case. Uh, remember what happened with uh, David and Uriah, where uh, David had Joab pull back while Uriah was in a dangerous place and Uriah was killed. Now, David, he was a country away when Uriah died. David probably didn't even know the day or the hour that Uriah died. He didn't even know until he got word later on that Uriah had died. But he died by David's command. And this is what Nathan the prophet has said to David. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your son, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. The guilt was at the feet of David. So this lie that it is only the one who is carrying out the act, not the one who is complicit, not the one who is paying for it, not the one who is ordering this act to begin with, is guilty. No, that's a lie. It is unbiblical. Our own laws don't uh, view it that way. However, we do have this one exception carved out because of that ultimate lie that we believe, that a mother must never be held accountable for the murder of her own child. And guess what? We hear this and we think, oh yeah, those, those evil abortionists. And yeah, that's right. Horrific, uh, a horrific uh, practice. But something that we don't recognize today is that more often than not in today's world, it is the mother herself who is the abortionist. Now we've talked about uh, do-it-yourself abortions that can be done through ordering pills online. In fact, more than half of the abortions that are carried out in the United States are carried out in this way. In fact, you'll hear states who will say, we finally outlawed abortion. We've shut down all the clinics. And in these states, there are more abortions taking place than there have been since even before. Since, the, uh, since uh, Roe versus Wade, since the end of Roe versus Wade, the ri- there's been a rise in abortions despite clinics being shut down because of this practice of do-it-yourself abortions. Most abortions today are done through this means. So, That's another lie that we believe, that it's the abortionist, not the one who pays for the abortion or or orders the abortion who is guilty. Another lie is this. Uh, Well, this this really is the lie, right? The lie that a mother should be free to kill her child with immunity and impunity. And this is the lie that has ensured that abortion has remained legal. And this is the lie that has ensured that abortion remains legal in the United States, not because of the pro-choicers, but because of the pro-life movement. Now, I say this, and I want to let it sink in. You're probably thinking, hold on a second. Aren't those the guys who are fighting to end abortion? You're crazy, Alex. How can you say that abortion is legal in the United States? How can you say that abortion is legal in Iowa today because of the pro-life movement? That's nuts. Well, maybe it does sound nuts. Let me explain. Almost every law, in fact, every law out there that has been passed by the pro-life movement, every law that attempts to somehow restrict abortion in this state and in states across the country, all of these laws share the same fundamental presupposition that the pro-choice movement has. And that presupposition is this, that a mother should be able to murder her child with immunity and impunity. Yeah, we want to restrict it. Yeah, we want to shut down abortion clinics. Yeah, we want to do all these things. But don't you dare say that if a mother murders her own unborn child, that she should be face consequences for it. That's what we hear. And I'll show you. I'll demonstrate this to you as well. Every single law that we have that regulates and prohibits the murder of the unborn will make exceptions in the case of the mother. There are laws that are, uh, that are made to, be, to give strict limits on abortions. They shut down clinics. They prosecute abortion doctors. 
There's a bill going through right now that would seek to prosecute those who threaten and or coerce a woman into getting an abortion. However, even this bill makes explicit exceptions for the mother. And there's no criminal penalty for the mother who willingly engages in murdering her own child. Now, this is not a bug of the pro-life movement. And when I say the pro-life movement, don't think I'm saying rank-and-file uh, pro-lifer who gives to these causes and things. Don't, don't think that, right? Think of those who are in charge. Think of those making the decisions. And uh, this is not a bug of the pro-life movement. It's a feature. Here's what the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America group says. We state unequivocally that we do not support any measure seeking to criminalize or punish women, and we stand firmly opposed to include such penalties in legislation. So what are they saying? Well, the same thing that the pro-abortion movement says, that women should be able to kill their children with immunity and impunity. Same foundational principle. Here's what we heard in the argument against a bill in, the, in Iowa that would have abolished abortion. Representative Steve Holt says this, it should be noted that as this bill passes, it would allow mothers who abort their children to be prosecuted and jailed. This is something that no credible person in the pro-life community believes is acceptable and would never pass in Iowa, and I will never advocate such a concept. Abortion is legal in Iowa. Abortion is legal in the United States and has been for the past 50 years with the permission of the pro-life movement. Because of this lie, this lie that we believe that mothers should be free, mothers should have the right to murder the child in her womb without consequence. Now, we don't apply this anywhere else, right? We already talked about the horrific stories, and we don't need to rehash them. But no one in their right mind would hear one of these horrific stories and say, well, hold on a second. That was the mother who did it. We shouldn't, uh, there shouldn't be any consequences for her since she was the mother. No. How much more horrific is it that it is the mother who does it in this case? So this is the lie that is keeping abortion legal. And perhaps the worst part of this lie, the worst part of this lie, is that it robs mothers who have their own unborn children murdered of the hope of the gospel. It robs mothers of the hope of the gospel. Christ did not come to save innocent people. He came to save the guilty. If a woman who murders her own child is continually told by the world around them, no, you're a victim, no, you're innocent, no, you did nothing wrong, then there will be no need for her to flee to Christ. There will be no need for her to flee to Christ. One of the purposes of the law of God is to take away every excuse that we would have and bring us all under God's condemnation. This is what the book of Romans says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. 
God takes away all of our excuses. Similarly, Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. The pro-life movement says to the woman that, No, you are not guilty of this. This is not a crime that you committed. You've done nothing wrong. You are merely a victim where the law of God leaves us without excuse. And uh, this is the constant lie that is being told. So now when a woman recognizes her own guilt because she still has a conscience, she still has the word of God that brings guilt on her, it gives an excuse where there is no excuse. It takes away accountability where there is accountability. And where one does not believe they are guilty, they will see no need for a savior. I could look at any number of my sins and find any number of excuses for them, but those excuses do not fly in the face of God. So this is the great uh, danger of this idea. This is the lie, uh, and there's another lie that we believe, the lie that compromise saves lives, right? Because here's what we'll hear, that you know, there's all kinds of bills that are being passed and bills that are put in place today. And we can acknowledge that, yeah, maybe those who, who put those bills forward are, are well-meaning. But these do not ultimately accomplish what, uh, uh, accomplish what they set out to do. And these bills are ultimately unjust and an ungodly compromise. And we talked about that, right? God does not give us exceptions. God does not uh, allow compromise in this area. We can look at our own state, our own state of Iowa. There was a 20-week abortion ban that was passed in 2019. And we think, well, praise God, at least some lives are being saved, right? Well, that's what we ultimately think, right? However, in the years preceding this uh, pass of the 20-week abortion ban, the rate of abortion went from 8% of pregnancies ending in abortion to 10%. Abortion actually went up. And why is that? Well, let me make an equivalency for you. Let's say we're in Nazi Germany right now, and a Jew can be taken to a concentration camp and killed at any point in time. Now, what were to happen if we were to say, hold on a second, this is a horrid, wicked act. We need to stop this. Therefore, you are not allowed to kill a Jew in your camp after they've been there for 20 weeks. Would that result in the saving of Jews? What would the real result be? No, we need to kill this Jew before we hit the 20-week deadline. That's what we see. That's what we see with these laws that are ultimately compromises, that are ultimately unjust in God's sight. They do not do what they say they're going to do, and they ultimately do the opposite of this. We saw how at the end of Roe versus Wade, there were clinics across the country that were shut down. There were trigger laws that came in place, laws like heartbeat bills and 10-week bans and 20-week bans and bills that shut down clinics, all of these things. And despite this, abortion is on the rise, including in these areas that are considered the most strict, such as Louisiana. And this is due, again, to these at-home abortions, which are more available than ever. You know, these pills are so incredibly accessible. Anyone can go online and order them for any reason from anywhere. In fact, it, it's easier to get these to order these pills that'll murder a child than it is to buy alcohol, than it is to buy cigarettes. Isn't that crazy? These bills, do, these pills, do not require you to be a certain age, 
And there are places that you can go to online where you can even order them for free. And they'll be sent directly to your house. Parents don't need to know. Husband doesn't need to know. Wife doesn't need to know. And they're used to kill the unborn. So we see that this approach of compromise, this approach of, well, let's set an arbitrary time where we now say killing an unborn child is illegal. We see that this approach is an ultimate failure because it is fundamentally flawed. It is compromising for the sake of political expediency, and these compromises result in no real progress in ending this Holocaust that is taking place. Right? Now, we can acknowledge there may be specific instances uh, where lives are saved, and we can praise God for that, right? If a woman has a uh, 22-week-year-old uh, child in the womb at the time this passes, that child will be saved, and we can praise God that that child is saved. However, we cannot use that as justification for these unrighteous laws. God can do good things through bad circumstances, and we can praise him for it, but it doesn't justify the means. It merely demonstrates that God can bring good out of bad. God does not compromise with evil, and neither should we. Moses, think of the Exodus, Moses would not accept the compromises offered by Pharaoh. Remember what God had told Moses, you'll go to Pharaoh, you'll tell him we're all going to go into the wilderness three days to offer sacrifices to the Lord. That's it, period. That is what you're going to tell him. Well, uh, and what happened? Well, at first Pharaoh said no, right? And he made things harder for the people of Israel. Oh, they, they must have a lot of time on their hands if they want to go out into the wilderness. But as things began to get bad, as the pressure began to mount, we saw Pharaoh begin to crack and begin to offer compromises. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go and sacrifice to your God within the land. All right, we're not going to let you leave, but we will let you sacrifice. You just need to stay here. Did Moses say, well, great, we're making some progress. Uh, we, we, we've gotten somewhere. We've, we're one step along the way. No, Moses says this, it is not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God. Uh, he says, we will not do this, uh, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? And then he re reiterates what God has said. We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commanded us. Of course, Pharaoh said no. The pressure continued to mount. Pharaoh says this, uh, and, and in fact, he does, says this under the pressure of his servants. Go and serve Yahweh your God. Who is going to go with you? Well, all of us. Well, no, no, not all of you can go. Then finally, pressure continues to mount. Pharaoh says, all right, you and your little ones can go. You just can leave the cattle. Again, closer, but Moses says, no, we will not compromise. We know what God has said in this area. We will not settle for anything less. These laws that are in place now enshrine partiality against the unborn into the legal system. These laws that are in place now do the opposite of what they intend to do. And we know what Proverbs says, a deceptive balance is an abomination before the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. No compromise. This position that I've been explaining for the past two weeks uh, this is not a unique position. In fact, this is what the church has been teaching from the very beginning. It's not just Alex up here coming up with all kinds of strange ideas that we've never heard before. This is what the church has consistently taught. 
The Didache, one of the earliest writings that we can find, written within a few decades of the time of the apostles, says this, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not sodomize, do not commit sexual immorality, do not steal, do not practice magic, do not use potions, do not murder a child by abortion, do not kill the just-born one. Epistle of Barnabas says something similar. You shall not murder a child by abortion, and again, you shall not kill the just-born one. Basil of Caesarea begins to get more specific. He says, and he is a couple hundred years removed from the apostles, he says this, the woman who purposely destroys her unborn child is guilty of murder. Women also who administer drugs to cause abortion, as well as those who take poisons to destroy unborn children, are murderesses. Another uh, writer says this, uh, Jerome, some when they find themselves with child through their sin, use drugs to procure abortion, and when, as often happens, they die with their offspring, they enter the lower world laden with the guilt, not only of adultery against Christ, but also of suicide and child murder. The killing of unborn children by any means has always been recognized as murder by the people of God. It's recognized as murder in the scriptures, and it must be recognized as murder in our own situation today. So what is our current situation? Well, it's as if we've reverted back to the pre-Christian view of the world. We've reverted back to the old pagan view. I said how, I talked about how abortion is a pagan sacrifice made on the altar of self-worship. Children throughout history have constantly been sacrificed on the altar of self, on the altar of seeking to better your own life. And if it takes the life of my child to do so, then so be it. Just as it was back then, the only way to end the shedding of innocent blood will be God's way. Roe versus Wade has ended, and it has not stopped it. Iowa, our own state, has been under the control of pro-life legislators for about seven years now, and there is no evidence that any less babies have been murdered. And now, with more efficient means of committing self-serve abortions, very few will legislate in a way that would prevent this. And we know that by just standing by and hoping that they'll do the right thing, it's going to end up with the same result. The only way this will change is with Christians bringing the authority of Christ and the gospel to bear, walking in obedience to God and calling on the world around us to repent. What is the first word that came out of John's mouth as he went to preach the gospel? Repent. What's the first word out of Jesus' mouth as he went to preach the gospel? Repent. What is the message that the church has to the world around it? Repent. Christ has all authority. He says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And if this is going to start, it needs to start here with us in the church by uh, dismantling these lies that we have believed for so long. Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we, as the church, not just here in the chapel, but the church as a whole, must no longer be complicit in believing these lies and through our own inaction, believing that this is someone else's job. So what are some action steps that we can all take? Well, one, 
We need to pray. We need to be on our knees about this issue. The battle belongs to the Lord. And without him, any effort we attempt will be in vain. We've seen 50 years of fruitlessness in this fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps walk in vain. We need to call upon the Lord. And as we do so, we need to be persistent in our prayers. Remember what Jesus said, the the parable of the man who went to his friend's house to get a few loaves of bread. The guy was in bed. He didn't want to get up. But because of the persistence of the man knocking on the door, he relented. And he says this, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And our desire must ultimately be that God's will be done. We know what God's will is on this matter from the scriptures, so we are to pray to that end. Pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we as the church need to pray. Similarly, we as the church, not just the chapel, but the church as a whole, need to be informed on this issue and trained to think through it in a biblical way. That's what we've been doing these past few weeks, being trained to think on this in a biblical way. We have been discipled by the world for too long on how we think about abortion. We've been discipled by those who would see abortion continue into perpetuity for too long on how we are to think about it. The word of God speaks clearly on this issue, not just the sinfulness of murder of the unborn, but how God expects us as his image bearers to respond to it. We need to be called, and we have to recognize that we have been called to action. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12, the passage I started on says, if you are slack in the day of trouble, your strength is in trouble. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Oh, hold them back. And then it says this, if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not, not, does not he who weighs the hearts understand? And does not he who guards your soul know? And will he not render to a man according to his work? We will not be able to say before God, we did not know. Finally, third, those organizations that we've talked about, we as the church need to call them to consistency and to repentance and faith in submission to what the Lord Jesus has taught. Unfortunately, as I said, pro-life organizations share the same presupposition that the pro-choice movement does, that a woman should be free to kill her unborn child with immunity. The only difference is the degree of regulation, where one says, yeah, they should be free to do it, but we need to regulate it. We need to set times where it can be done. We need to make specific ways in which it can be done, where the other side just wants to to be uh, free for all. This needs to be exposed, right? Leadership needs to be challenged on this, and supporters need to be shown this. Because how many many, uh, of those who are supporting these organizations are doing so under the assumption that they are working to the complete abolition of of abortion? This needs to be exposed. Uh, Like I said, more likely than not, this is not the view of those who support these movements. So those who head these movements, those who make the decisions for these movements, uh, need to be called to consistently. And then finally, four, our civil leaders must be called on to rule righteously according to God's justice and also according to the Constitution of the United States. Every single person in office 
swears an oath to uphold the Constitution. Guess what the Constitution says in the 14th Amendment? Well, the 14th Amendment guarantees equal protection under the law for all people in the United States. And even our Constitution, is uh, people are unwilling to follow through in that. But more than just the Constitution, God demands equal justice for all people under the law. We need to encourage our representatives to act on behalf of their unborn constituents in an uncompromising way, pointing out the failure and the hypocrisy of the regulations that seek to regulate abortion rather than criminalize it. And you know, it's amazing. Uh, I didn't know this until I visited. Did you know that you can actually just go to the Capitol and talk to your representative? You don't have to go through a whole bunch of red tape. You don't need to set up an appointment or a meeting. It's amazing. I was pretty free. You can just go there and visit them, and they'll come out and talk to you. So we need to encourage our representatives to rule rightly in this. And in all of this, we have to be persistent, right? Uh, we are such immediate thinkers, and we expect immediate results. At the first sign of failure, we immediately conclude, well, it must not be, it must not be meant to be. Scripture tells us otherwise. Remember the parable that Jesus told of the woman who knocked on the door of the unjust judge in order to be given protection. She's knocking on his door saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. But, and Jesus says, while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Let's wear out the doors of heaven and also wear out the doors of our legislators. And we need to pray and work with confidence that God is going to act. The institution of abortion is a terrible enemy of God, and yet it is one that will ultimately come under his feet. Let's have the conviction of William Wilberforce, who fought for the abolition of the slave trade in England. He gave a great rousing speech on May 12, 1789, calling for the abolition of abortion in that country. And it wasn't for almost 20 years before slavery was abolished. We have a long road ahead of us. However, we can know that God has gone before us, and we can know that victory belongs to the Lord. Now let us act as his hands and feet in this world in, uh, in order to protect these unborn. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that we have this challenge that you have given us, and yet the comfort to know that the battle belongs to you. Help us be courageous. Help us live consistently with what you have said. Help us be the bringers of good news, calling on the world to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your son is seated at your right hand. All authority belongs to him. Help us to live in light of that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.